0: Oh dear! <laughs> Welcome to the Coffee and Coding podcast, where we discuss all things app development. I'm your host Rob J, and in this episode, I talk to Android developer, author, and Udemy instructor Catalin Gita. We talk about Jetpack Compose, nailing your next Android interview, mentoring. Secondary income streams for developers and much, much more. Now on to the show. Yeah. So before we get into today's episode, just a little bit of housekeeping. I wanted to give a shout out to Burrows90, who left the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts. Hugely appreciated. And the review was, great pod, easy to listen to and follow with some great info for new developers without too much jargon. So I'm glad you think so. Uh, Again, huge thanks for the review. And if you haven't left a review for the show yet, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify wherever it is that you listen to this and leave the show a five star review. I would hugely appreciate it. And second bit of housekeeping, we had a new subscriber to the show this week, Nick Mullen. So, Nick signed up to buy me a daily coffee, which is hugely appreciated. I definitely cannot get enough caffeine and left a comment. Great info and energy throughout your podcast. Thanks for sharing your freelance and contracting experience. So, you are very welcome, Nick. And as Nick signed up for the daily coffee subscription tier, an exclusive coffee encoding t shirt will be winging its way to you very shortly. So, again, thanks for that. And if you would like to subscribe to the show or if you would like to donate or if you'd like to support the show in any way you could head over to coffeeencodingpod.com forward slash support and see what options there are over there to support the show anything you want to give massively appreciated and with all of that said now here's today's episode before we get into like the good stuff like just to get started can you give the listeners just a brief summary of kind of like who you are your background that sort of thing
1: yeah sure sure so yeah first of all, um I'm Katelyn. I've been doing Android for quite some while now i i think I think almost six seven years kind of lost count at some point um and it kind of begun with like um you know a passion in in when I started university, I was quite disappointed with what I was learning, you know, and i I kind of felt that even though I was at a computer science um you know uh university. Uh, oriented university it, it still felt like you know i didn't really have a chance to you know get practical and actually learn something um and then i kind of figured out okay how can i actually start doing doing things right how can i actually get my hands dirty and and play around with some code uh and at that time i had an android phone i still do actually um but um i, I kind of thought okay why don't i just build an app i can you know i can get that Instant feeling of, of building something that I can check out. And it's something that, you know, you run the code and, and then you see the output and, uh, on, on your phone. It's, it's a great feeling, to be honest. This, this got me actually hooked in. Um, it, it was this kind of, you know, um, uh, satisfaction that you can build something with, with your own, you know, hands, not really hands, but you know, we, we kind of use our, our fingers most, most often. So, um, it got me into, into programming. I started learning it on my own, basically, you know, just learning like outside of, of school and university classes and stuff. And I kind of, I kind of got hooked. Um, and then I, I actually started you know learning it like eight, ten hours a day. I, I actually really really enjoyed it and and I spent like uh, more time than I, I did you know at my university. Uh, I still finished it, you know um for for someone who is curious about that, but um at at that time uh, I was definitely you know hooked in programming and Android. So from that point on I started learning more and more, I got my first job and then it kind of started rolling in and here we are today. Um, I won't really, um, give you too many details. What's worth mentioning is that I have a, a few Udemy courses. I'm trying desperately to keep them maintained. It's, it's a very tedious task. Um, it's very difficult. People ask, ask that and it kind of makes sense. And just to give you like in context, one of my courses is on, is on Compose, a crash course, and it also kind of relies on the image loading APIs from Coil. And just to give you like some context, I had to re-record the sessions for, um, for that particular, um, uh, you know, section with Coil. I think over five, six times and it's still outdated. I still need to do it again. And I kind of decide, you know what? I'm going to rewrite it. So I'm trying to find times. It's, it's, it's getting more and more difficult as I'm getting engaged in more and more projects. But aside from my Udemy courses, I also recently published a book. I'm sure you heard of it. Uh, I always kind of um, take any opportunity to brag about it on Twitter. And, and that book is mainly mainly on Android development. Maybe we can touch upon it later. So yeah, aside from this, I I, I do have a bit of experience in in, in you know in production apps. Um, and I, I would say that you know this is like um, a short summary. One thing that I would like to mention though is that I'm a professional spaghetti code writer. So you know, as we, I, I guess we are, we all are in, to a certain degree, right? So I'm, I must mention that. I mean, it's like um, a, a, every time I kind of revisit my code, I find ways of improvement. So that's why I kind of always call myself a spaghetti coder. Um, so yeah, we 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 all kind of write spaghetti spaghetti codes. So it's it's nothing to be ashamed of, to be honest. So yeah, just wanted to lighten up the mood a bit. <laughs> okay, awesome, awesome.
0: Yeah, I mean. I think spaghetti code is a good word. I was going to say, I think every good developer goes back to code that they wrote before and thinks that it's below the standard there should be, which kind of just shows that you're improving, right? Because if you went back to it a year later and you were like, oh, this is amazing, then like <laughs> there's either two things, right? Which is like either it's amazing and there's no room for improvement or you haven't learned anything new.
1: Yeah that's totally like a really good definition you can compare it with like food right so if you leave some some milk there it's going to age like milk like in a few you know milk ages in a few days right so if you kind of leave some food open and the next year go then it's still good then definitely something was wrong with that yeah it was probably food from mcdonald's in that case (laughs) because apparently it never goes off exactly 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 so same thing with the code, right? Same thing with the code. If you feel like your code is, is good, then probably something is wrong with you, man. I mean, it's, you have to be like a genius or something. I mean, it's it's just really tough.
0: Yeah, those, those are the two options. You are the, it either is good and you are a genius, or it's just, you know, it's as good as you are and you need a little bit more improvement, probably. Yeah. Cool. All right. So I'm going to jump around a little bit because there's a bunch of stuff that I want to cover, and you mentioned a couple of things. So I want to jump onto the Udemy stuff first, um, which is primarily... Like what made you start doing Udemy-, Udemy courses? Cause you said you have more than one and kind of like, yeah, what's, what's the reason that you do them? Cause I know people do them for different reasons. So some people is just for education. Some people is cause it kind of looks cool to be able to say like, Oh, I have a Udemy course. You know, some people use it to make money, but then I've also heard people say like they don't really make money from it. So like, what was your motivation behind doing that?
1: Yeah. My motivation as with everything is, you know, uh, I, I guess it's, it's a double edged you know, um sword. So on one side you obviously want to give back a bit, uh, from what you've learned. I mean in, in my in my case, everything that I, I learned and I know right now, um was was, you know, learned online from, from people and, and I actually never had a mentor that was actually there for me to tell me, hey, you stupid uh, you know, you, you, you stupid coder, you don't have to do it this way. There is like a, a simple way of, oh, you can just keep learning those. They make no sense. Um, there was nobody like that, you know, for me. Um, so I kind of went the hard way. I learned everything, uh, that I was trying to, you know, everything that I would notice that made sense into my brain at that time. Uh, obviously later down the road, it didn't make sense. I kind of realized that I learned something that I already forgotten. They didn't really help me. Um, so. From, from one side, it's obviously, you know, the thing that you want to give back. I mean, again, everything that I know is something that I've learned online. So I'm, I'm also trying to give back as much as I can. Um, and at the same time, I'm also trying to, you know, earn some, some money because again, it's, it's really important to be frank with yourself. When you're building a product, um, the measure of success for that product is the, uh, you know, the income that it generates. Um, so when you kind of try to, to blend those things together and, at the end of the day, also enjoy it, I guess you you have a recipe for uh, for success. Obviously, you can go like, you know, I don't care about money and stuff, but it's really important because, you know, money actually drives you to uh, build a good product, right? So uh, you could just create free products that nobody gets them, nobody buys them, uh, not really buys them, but nobody actually tries to sign up for them. Uh, and when you kind of think it from this perspective, what value can I add so that... That person, when, you know, that when that person purchases my products, um, you know, actually that person gets some, some satisfaction, some, some value right back. And when you kind of shift the mentality like that, you also kind of try to, you know, um, build a, a good product. Um, so, you know, as with everything, when you try to do your best, um, money will come. Uh, in my case, when I published my first course, it, it basically, um, resulted in, Almost no money, <laughs> so it was it was a failure at that time. I mean, I was trying to you know share some things. It didn't go well. Um, by the time that I, I I kind of went with my second try was at that time. Compose was really early. I mean, alpha early. People weren't really talking about it. I mean, it was like you know that kind of library that maybe you heard of it, but you're not just gonna you're not just just gonna learn it because it's just too soon. So, at that time, I said, you know, what? why don't I try to create a curse about it? I didn't know that much. Even now, I don't know that much, um, but uh, it actually turned out to be a, a decent success. It provided me like maybe a year, a year and a half with some decent income. So, if anyone is listening and they want to kind of create the Udemy Curses, um, I I wouldn't say they should be discouraged by, you know, um, some people earning nothing because I also did that, it's just, uh, you know, You have to master the art of finding the right subject, something which is, you know, which people actually want to learn. And also, you know, um, even if it's new and there are other courses, other people teaching it, you shouldn't be discouraged because when I initially, um, published my course, there was another Udemy course. I think, I think there were two, right? But they really had like low ratings. Um, they were just things which were teached like from, from tutorials and stuff. So it wasn't, they weren't really consistent. So, you also need to kind of try to make something a bit better, right? You have to kind of come with your own twist. Um, but yeah, uh, again, um, I did it for both. I also enjoyed it. Um, I also enjoyed it, you know, getting some, some passive income, which is not so passive. So if anyone is listening, it's, in, it's expecting for this income to be passive. It's never passive. You always have to update it. My example with Coil, um, it was basically changing, their API was basically changing like every two weeks. So you always had to go and re-record, re-record. Um, and yeah, it's not, uh, obviously ideal, but you have to do it. And right now, um, again, the, the, with Compose, which is just advancing 1.1, 1.2, we'll have 1.3 soon. So, um, you have to kind of put in the hours and make sure that uh, everything is, is fine. Everybody's happy and also answer questions. So, it's not that passive, but it's, it's definitely an income that can help you. Uh, you're not going to get rich. I, I actually never had the chance to discuss with, to talk with somebody that can, you know, can, can, um, uh, wholeheartedly say that they got rich of Udemy courses. Uh, there are teachers which kind of do this full time and they have like, hundreds of thousands of students maybe maybe it's the case for them um but if you're like a you know a developer and trying to make some side income and you're passionate about teaching others i think it's the greatest i mean it's one of the best entry points that you can actually take
0: yeah that that totally makes sense and i was going to say in terms of the difference between the first course and like the the course that you're saying is did well was that primarily subject matter? Do you think that made the difference or were there other things that you did in terms of like marketing and getting the word out and that kind of thing?
1: I think I think in my case, it was solely due to the subjects at hand, which was composed because, you know, like in the first few months, I wasn't getting that much much traction. So I was like, okay, I flipped again. I flopped again like my second course which is not doing anything but then it was like Google announced uh, you know the official beta release for um, uh, for compose and it kind of blew up right at that time um so um that was like a a very good reason at that time I didn't really have you know a following or an audience that I could promote it to uh, I was solely relying on Udemy for that so um I I can I can't say that it was the subject that actually mattered and and to be honest, if you have an audience, if you are already, you know, a content creator, which has an audience, I wouldn't even advise you to, to go down the route of, of, of Udemy, right? I would probably choose something else. I would probably, you know, um, because Udemy takes quite a lot of, 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 of the, of the income, right? So two thirds or something in most cases, which is huge huge crazy at the same time i have like uh, tens of thousands of students that i wouldn't have had without udemy so i can't really you know i can't really complain about that but that's how that's how things uh you know roll in the beginning
0: okay cool all right and then you mentioned something along the lines of you know you started the course you didn't know that much about it like in terms of compose you said you still don't know that much but you have a book out that's on amazon that has pretty good reviews i had a quick look today as well um So you obviously know a decent amount about it. So same kind of vibe, like what made you start the book, but then also what is your intention for people to get out of the book that they wouldn't get from just like going to the Google docs about Jetpack Compose and whatever they're trying to do?
1: Yeah, actually, actually, you know, this question is, it's a, it's a great question and it's something that, you know, you you kind of ask yourself anytime you kind of try to create a, a product. So, um, Going back to your first question, which was, you know, related to my experience on Compose, I think that we can actually take something valuable here because, um, a lot of people which are trying to get into content creation are afraid, um, by the fact that they don't really master that specific topic. And when you're kind of trying to, um, see which is the next, uh, great thing so that you can, uh, you know, have a bit of success with, with, uh, you know, with a course or something and have less competition, uh, then it's prone for you to not be familiar with, with it, right? So, um, at that time, I knew a bit of Compose, but I was like, I, I, didn't really master it. Like, um, I didn't have years of experience like I did with the view system, right? With XML and stuff. So I kind of, you know, I, I started learning it as I was teaching it. And this is the same case with the book, right? Uh, even though, you know, you would expect that the book is, is, it goes into much more depth and it actually does, uh, you know, when you compare it with the Udemy course, um, it's just that um when you try to uh you know teach somebody something a topic a technology library you have to shift your mindset from uh you know um from just consuming it using it like like I am going to use this library in my project I'm just going to import it <laughs> I'm going to let it do its job and I'm going to be heading home happy but when you're kind of trying to teach something s- somebody about it then you can't just you know call this methods uh, this method will do that and everybody's happy. You need to go in, uh, kind of, you need to shift your mentality a bit and try to understand what am I trying to explain to my reader, right? Um, what is the reader actually, um, which are the questions that the reader is asking himself, right? Or herself. Um, so you need to kind of go into the route of, you know, why do I need that? How, how that thing works and how do I actually use it? And, only then you kind of go into the question how do i use it so um when i kind of started off with with this was that um you don't really have to know all of this you can learn them as you actually try to uh, teach somebody about them because that's when you will kind of ask the right questions and that's when you will get answers because you know i was often i would try to explain something that i would say you know even dependency injection the topic on on dependency injection is something that Every Android developer talks about, I, I felt comfortable about, comfortable about that topic. And, you know, I, I said, this is one chapter that I don't really need to, to do a bit of research about. And then I kind of went a bit deeper into it and I realized that some things weren't 100% clear to me, right? And I, I, I kind of, you know, started researching, understanding. And then I, I did that because I, I was forced to go and ask those questions to myself so I can then answer them to my reader. So, uh, again, when you go into this mindset, when you shift your mindset like that, you, you, you kind of tend to ask the right questions and you find the answers. And when you find them, you're a bit, a bit smarter at the end of the day, but you can also share that, right? Because that's, that was your initial purpose. So again, don't be like discouraged by the fact that you don't really master something. Uh, you can learn it and, and understand it much better when you're trying to explain it to somebody else. I think, I think that's like a, a very nice way of learning things. I actually enjoy that when I, I'm trying to teach something to somebody. At the end of the day, I realize that I know more than I did because you know at some point I realize oh I don't I don't know anything about this. Let's, let's just Google this together and, and understand it, right? So I think I feel, hopefully this this answers your first question. And now I'm going to go into the second one, which is related to the book. Uh, why did I write it? And obviously, um, what's so special about it? Um, well. I kind of wanted to write it. Uh, I always wanted to write a book. And it's a, it's a fun fact. Uh, I actually dreamed about writing, not really technical books, but novels and stuff, right? So, I, I actually, it was one of the things that I, I, I find, like, I, I find it really pleasurable, right? Um, but I never got the chance. Uh, I got into tech. And into tech, you're not going to write novels and stuff. So, you, you don't really have time to do that. I, I honestly don't have time to do that. But then, um, uh, there was one day I was, I was on Twitter and, um, I think I've seen, um, um, Thomas kind of book about Compose, uh, and I've noticed that, you know, actually PAX, which is the, the, the editor, um, ship, a publication, responded to his tweet and I was like, Oh, this is so nice. I like, I also commented and I said, I, I would, I would really like to, uh, at some point to, to, to write a book, but I actually never, had any expectations from that tweet. I mean, how many times do we just write a, a tweet or a comment and we just have no expectations about it? And later, like a few days later, I got contacted by them and they asked me if I wanted to write a book. And I was like, yeah, I mean, why not? I actually wa- want to do that, right? Um, in the sense that I, I would like to teach people what I know and what I actually learned in terms of, you know, when you kind of um, learn everything by yourself, you're prone to making tons of mistakes. You and you make mistakes in any way, but even if somebody will, will kind of try to help you avoid them, but especially when you don't have guidance. So, um, I said, you know what? Maybe I can share a bit of, of, of the mistakes that I've done and I can write a book on, on, on Android. So this, this, this was like the, the initial, uh, reasoning. And then, um, the, the, the follow up question was, you know, what's different about it? And, you know, why people aren't just going to um, tutorials and following those tutorials. Now, I must say, uh, like a a huge disclaimer, that the Android um, official Android documentation and not really documentation, but official tutorials have improved massively uh, in the last maybe couple of years, I would say, as opposed to how they were maybe six years ago, you would barely find anything, Um, you just find articles and stuff. Uh, right now, I would say that those um tutorials are actually really really helpful and they're very well designed so they they improve that uh, a lot um however, you know most of the time these tutorials are you know um they are really specific to one technology or one problem at hand um and, and they're not really you know trying to create uh you know um a journey or or not really a journey but uh you know, an experience that allows you to go from zero to a, an app built with a lot of layers. and by layers i'm gonna I'm gonna tell you in a second what i what I mean by layers. What I actually tried to to accomplish with this book is to take a project from zero and then kind of build uh, and add new things to it um, on every chapter. So you know the book actually starts with um uh, a blank project in Compose. You started, you start adding a list of stuff, you build a UI and, and that's like a, a, you know, a short intro to compose. But then in the next chapter, you actually cover state and view model, right? The need for view model and stuff. And then on that project from chapter one, you update it and you kind of, you know, have to refactor it and understand a few things. And this kind of strategy goes all the way to uh, chapter 10, almost the entire book. So. What we actually tried to do was, um, create a, a, an experience for the reader to start from scratch and then on each chapter add a new technology, present a new problem and then kind of try to, to understand what can I use, um, so that I can fix this problem, right? How can I use, um, I don't know, coroutines, for example, to make my life easier? Even though debatable coroutines are easy for simple stuff, very complex for more difficult, concurrency stuff, but, um, the thing is that, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, um, concepts and libraries are introduced within this book, um, you know, gradually on an existing project. And then on every chapter, you have to refactor, to modify, to, you basically, you know, start up with a spaghetti code project and then you e- easily evolve into a stratified uh, app, which uses MVVM. You know, for the UI presentation pattern, um, and then a bit of clean architecture, not too much because people tend to go over the board with it. Um, you know, just trying to understand why do I need that? Uh, why do I need, for example, use cases? Do I need, to, do I need them just because there's a, a very cool article online? But the, the book actually goes into the idea that if you have, for example, business logic and it's reused, reused throughout your app, you might want to extract it and you don't want it to be uh, maybe in the view model because that's your, your, your master presenter, right? Um, so the, the core thing that we try to do is basically, you know, uh, understand why each library is needed, what problem it solves and how it does that. And moreover, we, we actually try to go a bit into, uh, the internals of, of things, right? How, for example, the view model works. How is the the view mode lifecycle aware or how is live data um, lifecycle aware? So we kind of try to also go a bit into the details because um, I actually understood that that's very important. It's really interesting when you use a library to understand why you're using it. And the book kind of tries to create this experience, right? So uh, again, you can take tutorials that will help you. But most of the time, these kind of tutorials are, you know, they're very precise and they're corresponding to one thing. However, the book goes into, you know, compose view model, retrofit, coroutines, killed for dependency injection, covers presentation patterns and covers room for persistence, uh, and concepts like, you know, single source of truth, a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff. I even went into the, uh, into the, the, the part for the view model to understand what is, uh, system initiated process death and how you can recover with it, with the new APIs, uh, the save state handle, um, thing which, is rarely mentioned, and you probably see Gabriel Verity mentioning this uh, a lot of times, which is I'm actually really grateful because um, you know I, I wasn't that aware of, about that problem until I actually went stumbled upon his um, his writing. So I tried to you know uh, also cover gotchas and stuff like that. But even even as far as you know um, you know as I mentioned clean architecture, but I went as far as you know. Understanding a bit how to un- unit test your, your, your logic, your core logic, how you can UI test a bit of, you know, some compose screens and, and stuff. I kind of try to touch everything, but again, with the idea that we, we're trying to evolve a project to, to build it from scratch and then refactor it, clean it up, make sure that it's, it's production ready, right? So, um, this is like the main difference that I would say, um, uh, of the book. If you would compare it with the regular tutorial, right? If you would try to take, um, a corresponding tutorial for each chapter, maybe you would get some basics, but, you know, the book actually helps you, um, traverse an experience, right? So at the end of the book, you will understand, you will have understood a lot of things on a project that you have built. And the thing is that the book is, you know, usually when you, when you say book, you, you will say that, Hey, this book will present the theoretical stuff, right? Um, now there are a lot of, you know, practical aspects in, in, in IT books, but this book in, in particular won't, you know, have a different project for each chapter. It will kind of take this chapter and evolve it. And to be honest with you, now that we, we, we are here, um, it was a, a huge challenge to, um, take a project and kind of be able to introduce every concept and every library, um, from Jetpack based on a specific need. Uh, on a specific logic and then have each chapter depend on the previous code without you know having huge um issues in terms of uh, you know um previous dependencies for previous chapters that that was that was a huge challenge to be honest that was like the, the most difficult part um because you know every chapter is dependent uh on the code from the previous chapter but at the same time You know, you want to allow the user, uh, the reader, I'm sorry, um, to um, also understand some stuff without uh, having to code the previous um, chapter. So it was was a challenge, but at the end of the day, this is, I would say, I would say that it is a practical um, condensed experience, which is different from from tutorials, which only teach one thing, often without context or often without explaining to you why do you need that. We'll get right
0: back to the show. But first, I just wanted to remind you that if you're enjoying this episode, if you feel it's bringing you value, then it would mean a lot to me if you shared it with a friend or fellow developer. That's it. Just hit the share button in your podcast app of choice and you know what to do. Now, back to the show. I mean, there's a couple of things there I think are really important, which is um, there is definitely a famous quote. I don't know whose quote it is, and I don't know off the top of my head, but along the lines of like, The way that you only know, the only way that you know that you truly know something is if you can explain it well to somebody else. And I think that what you said there is, is definitely true because like there's things like dependency injection, for example, I know how to use it. Like I use it every day. If somebody tried, like if somebody asked me like, what is dependency injection? And I gave them the basic answer and they asked me to go a little bit more into detail. I can't do it like i know, i like I could tell you exactly what to do, why like I could tell you the reason that you use it, but in terms of explaining it, I can't do that um and then also, yeah, that makes sense because why your book is an improvement over tutorials is because yeah, tutorials is just like, I want to do this one thing, this is how you do it, but there isn't the context, there isn't even the context of like this is how you do it in different scenarios, or you know this might not be the best way to do it if your your project looks like this, all that kind of stuff is definitely missing. Um. So it definitely sounds like a very far out approach. It doesn't really sound like a Jetpack Compose book, if I'm being honest. As much as it sounds like how to build Android applications using, like, including Jetpack Compose, but it sounds like it's the whole the whole shebang.
1: Yeah, actually, actually, uh, you know, the the book, you know, in in the title, we we didn't really want to, you know, brag too much about Compose. We just went with a general Jetpack libraries approach, but, but, you know, um, the, the the interesting part, and I think a lot of people are actually interested in, in this is, uh, that the book has, um, you know, the UI layer built with Compose, because there were other books, to be honest, trying to cover these topics, um, but none of them actually had a chance to, um, build an app which has the UI layer on Compose. And obviously, um, that doesn't mean too much. I mean, some things, um, don't really um, matter, um, if you're using, um, you know, uh, the view system or, or compose, but there are some, some specific things like the view model could be, um, if, if you have a full 100% app in compose, uh, you'll probably n- not need state flow, for example. You'll probably just resume with, um, uh, a regular compose runtime, um, state object, right? Mutable state object. So you might not even need it and stuff like that. And, um, and the thing is, um, for example even pagination is is influenced by uh you know the ui layer because the ui layer actually dri- drives i also cover pagination yeah I, I don't think i mentioned that but um what i i'm trying to say is that the ui layer drives uh how pagination works in terms of you know the api is not really how it works but uh if in the view system you'd have views propagating the, the fact that you have reached the bottom of the list um then in compose things are a bit different um but g- going back a bit to what you mentioned because it was really interesting uh regarding to how to explain things i think that how i remember that code was uh, um very similar a uh, slightly different in the sense that um if it was something like if you you know the measure of you knowing something very well is how simply you can put or explain it right so if you can explain it simply uh in a, in a very you know concise and and for somebody which is probably not an expert right um then it basically means that you know um uh quite a bit about that topic but if your explanation is often complicated then probably you you, you need to kind of find a a better way of of simplifying that and obviously i would probably make one exception which is coroutines because that th- those coroutines are just impossible to explain in a, simple, in a simple manner. But yeah, generally, I think that code is very, very interesting. Thanks for, for bringing it up.
0: Yeah, no worries. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard a couple of people talk about it, and I always think it's really interesting because it's always like, especially if I talk to people that aren't technical and they will ask me something, you know, like, you know, what did you do today or whatever it happens to be, and outside the very first sentence of like, I'm doing this, or if someone watches me code, I've had that before as well, where like someone's watching you and they're like, okay, why do you do this? And like the like my answer would be that's because that's what you do, but that's not the answer. I'm not explaining anything to you. I know it's right. I can tell you a hundred percent. This is how you do it, but the reason why is like, I don't, I don't know it back, like back to front enough to be able to explain it. So I think yeah, that's definitely an important skill. Um, to definitely like be able to master stuff. Totally. Yeah. I, I want to shift along a little bit. So. Um, I have written down on my notes, all I wrote down is Android interviews. I didn't write a question, (laughs) but I feel like I messaged you about it when we were speaking a couple of weeks ago. So I feel like me and you share different, similar views on the interview process, let's say. Um, So I don't know if you want to riff on that a little bit. I should have worded the question much better, but I haven't, so I apologize.
1: Uh, No, it's fine. It's fine. Actually, I think think we'll find the subject really interesting because um, at my previous company, I kind of had a chance of interviewing a lot of people. We were oftenly, uh, you know, uh, increasing, um, and kind of building new teams or, you know, scaling our team or people would just, you know, switch jobs and stuff happens. And, um, I kind of had the chance, I would say an opportunity to kind of interview a lot of, uh, candidates because I kind of got to understand, you know, um, How people, other people are doing stuff. So obviously you can, you can check that out on Twitter and stuff, but you know, um, at a technical interview, kind of get a chance to discuss and understand other perspectives. And it's very, very important to have this chance because otherwise you're basically living in your own bubble. You're maybe reading a few, a few articles and and stuff. But when you kind of get a chance to discuss with a variety of, of technical, uh, engineers on, on Android, um, or any topic at hand, to be honest, but you get a chance of understanding how they are building stuff. And most of the time, when I interviewed a lot of people, um, what stood out for me was... I'm going to start with a negative, but uh, what stood out for me um, was the lack of understanding how things work behind the scenes. I would obviously not go into questions, what's the native memory model and how does that work or the heap and stuff. So I wouldn't really go that much into depth. But this is mostly along the lines that you mentioned already, right? So when you're trying to explain um, something that you're using and you're, you're you're trying to to see okay why or how does this actually work and my 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 surprise was that a lot of people were using view model which is totally fine I'm also using it uh and just to to kind of clarify this for anyone listening to us I, I mean the android architecture component view model so the jetpack view model um so a lot of people were using uh, jetpack view model or live data However, when I would just ask them you know okay, but how does this work uh, in a sense of why are you using this view model what's the actual benefit that it brings to you Then nobody would i mean not really nobody there were a lot of a lot of um uh, you know engineers that had this answer, but at the same time there was a surprisingly high uh number of engineers which didn't uh, which would have this kind of generic answers like because that's the way or you know because that's how google recommends it i mean i'm Obviously a fan of Google. I don't want, I usually support their technologies and libraries uh, more than other engineers try to fight uh, with them. However, that doesn't mean that if Google publishes something, I'm going to automatically be, you know, totally excited about it and say, yeah, this probably because it's Google is very good. No, you always have to kind of go, um, with your own, um, thinking and understand it. And w- one thing which again stood out was, asking people about live data, right? They were just, you know, observing inside their fragments, um, some, some content, right? Some um, some UI changes from the view model. And I would kind of go a bit and, and try to test them and ask them, um, so you're observing this with the, with the live data. I mean, are you sure that, you know, these kind of um, updates to the UI aren't performed after, say, you navigate to a different screen? Or, or how do you ensure that? Knowing behind the scenes that live data does that because it's lifecycle aware, and and that's why when you observe um, a live data object instance, you pass a lifecycle owner because it, you kind of tie those updates to it, and that's how you make sure that those updates will not be triggered at inappropriate times. However, um, you know there were a lot of engineers were, were saying, "Oh, I didn't think of that. So let me remove the observer in the on stop or on destroy, whatever." And then they would say, oh, it's fixed. Now it's fine, right? And I was like, no, man, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's obviously fine that you did that, but you shouldn't have, right? And I would just tell them, let's just go into the source code of, of, of the observe and, and see what happens. And I, we practically went through the code and, and noticed how, you know, um, the lifecycle owner would be bound and then it would be cleared uh, on, on the correct lifecycle event. So um, it was really surprising to see that a lot of engineers, and I'm, I'm going to be honest, they weren't bad engineers. They were good. I mean, they provide very interesting solutions, very interesting stuff. Um, However, you know, um, when you'd kind of come into this discussion, they would have no idea why they were using it. Same with view model, right? I, I would ask them why, what was the primary reason, you know, for you to use this view model. And um when I kind of would, I would try to, you know, um, go into a very simple discussion, like just, you know, Activity rotation, right? Without messing with the manifest and uh, making sure that it's not recreated. So just a default activity recreation. Um, then is there any, any advantage that the viewmodel model provides you with, right? And, um, they would be, Oh, but the, the viewmodel also destroys when the activity is destroyed. And I was like, No, <laughs> that's why you used it, right? That, that, that was the, I mean, uh, in the early days, if I'm not mistaken, the viewmodel model was actually just, this, um, you know, this kind of, um, fancy, you know, um, uh container that will just allow you to restore on, on on events like activity rotation. Now obviously today we're using it also as you know um sort of presenter that holds the state and you know updates it. Um but at initially that was his purpose. It was repurposed by us Android developers. Um, so they were missing stuff like that. Or I, I kind of got into senior engineers maybe seven, eight, eight years which you know um were saying um that even the activity is not destroyed when you rotate the screen again without messing with manifest um so again a lot of a lot of things like that kind of got me into thinking you know what i should touch upon these topics in the book uh, and i actually have this chapter which is um lifecycle components where we kind of Understand w- what's up with this, you know, lifecycle aware thingy. Why do we need it? And how, you know, the view model is lifecycle aware and is cleared when, um, you know, the state owner is cleared. And uh, uh, the same thing with live data. Um, and then at the end, we also actually create the lifecycle aware component that not only takes into account the lifecycle of, uh, of the underlying, uh, you know, state owner, which can be a fragment activity, whatever you have. Um, but also compose not really lifecycle of compose but you know the composition cycle of compose because um you know it, right now things have changed a bit we are we we aren't really supposed to be careful um only about lifecycle um events and states but also about the composition um you know uh, cycle if that in a sense for example maybe you want that lifecycle with components to be cleared somehow when the underlying composable which you know renders uh, some of that content disappears off the screen. So leaves composition, right? So stuff like that. Um, again, trying to understand why you need them and, and, and all these kind of interesting topics. This, this, this kind of idea that, you know, um, after, uh, after seeing that a lot of very smart developers, um, uh, which I actually enjoy talking to didn't really. Have these kind of basic things, like i mean uh, uh, when you're a junior you're you're asked about life cycle and stuff so um again not, not really trying to um bash or anything um th- their beliefs and concepts, but for example, we had senior engineers which um wanted to use um not our, uh X bus what was there was that 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 pattern which basically has a single tone uh, object uh where you or, or which you kind of observe the results and anyone, because it's static, anyone can send an event. I think it's, um, something like, um, the, the boss event, boss pattern, whatever yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm having. What I'm
0: talking
1: about. Yeah. A, I'm, I'm having a total meltdown right now, my brain. Um, so, uh, again, trying to discuss with them. Why do you want that? Because actually I had a re- really fun encounter with, um, with a candidate, which was saying, are oh, you using are uh, you using uh repositories and stuff? Uh I'm using um uh, you know this kind of pattern with the boss, uh event boss. Event boss, got it. Um and I really want to use that. And then I get okay, interesting, let's discuss about it. Why do you use it? And he was like, Oh, because it's very easy to push events from everywhere within the app and it was like that's that's indeed convenient you can when a stat with a static thing you can you know send events from everywhere and anyone which is interested can observe them however i was like let's also discuss about the cons and the trade-offs of that because when you have you know um really no control on who actually sends those events you will get to some point where the app will evolve people will start adding features and stuff uh and you'll get to some point where so many events are sent from so many places that it will get out of hand and debugging it will become a nightmare uh, just because anyone will send an event from anywhere at any time so that's that's to be honest in in my perspective a debugging nightmare so um again these kind of things It's really important, uh, you know, if somebody is curious about this and is taking an interview and is discussing with with the interviewer um, uh, different architectures, concepts, or uh, really approaches to their um, way of solving stuff, they should be prepared with discussing trade-offs, right? Um, There are always going to be advantages to your implementation. There's always going to be uh, problems and trade-offs. And it's really important to know those because if you don't Actually, you're not aware of them, then maybe you're not really aware how good your solution is. The same with the, with the event bus. People were using event bus, um, you know, in the early days. And initially it was a great, I actually have a very good friend, which was developing his own hobby project. And, um, she was like, man, I'm using EventBus and it's just so easy. It was an Android app, just for reference. It was an Android app. Um, and it was like, it's so easy for me to send events from everywhere. It's Everything is centralized. Everything is nice. And I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm not sold on it, but okay. And then like a few months later, as the project became more and more complex, his side hobby project was, was becoming quite big. He was like, Kathleen... Man, I, I can't, I can't fix any bug anymore because I, <laughs> every, there are so many dens of tens um and tens of events coming in from everywhere and like, it's, it's a, it's, it's a disaster. I'm not going to say any other words just so that you don't have problems with YouTube and stuff, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I was
0: going to say like, I've, I remember apps that used event bus that I worked on, you know, in the early days, like 2014, that kind of time. Um, now I would say if you have some sort of architecture like that, it's probably because you don't have good architecture because there definitely shouldn't be something like that in your app. Like imagine trying to debug an app where, you know, this thing crashed because this event got sent by this event could have been sent from 17 different places. Yeah. And all you have is the stack trace that says crashed because of this (laughs) event. Like, how do you, like, how do you fix that? It's crazy. Um,
1: yeah. And even if you have the stack trace, even if you have it, uh, just trying to understand what caused that, and why, why you know, and trying to understand. in Usually, when it, the problems not arise when one event comes, problems arise arise when you have multiple events coming in. So, you know, even if the, your 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 stack trace is caused by let's say one event being fired off from one source, it might not be that that you know action was was the cause. So exactly as you said, good luck, you know, trying to find and and debug that. It's just impossible.
0: A very brief interruption to remind you that if you are not a supporter of the show, then you can become a supporter of the show for as little as $2. Just head over to coffeeandcodingpod.com forward slash support. There's a number of different tiers to choose from. And of course they are all aptly coffee names. So if you want to buy me a monthly espresso, you can, if you want to make it a cappuccino, you're welcome to. And if you want to make it the affogato, then you're also more than welcome to. For those of you that are not coffee connoisseurs, an affogato is a scoop of ice cream with an espresso poured on top. It is delicious, but seriously, speaking, if you want to support the show, I would hugely appreciate it. Whatever you want to give goes a long way in helping me keep the show running. So coffeeencodingpod.com forward slash support. Now with that being said, let's get back to the show. Oh, I was just going to touch on what you said about um, candidates. So two things that came to mind, which is one, at least in my experience, senior engineer doesn't necessarily mean senior engineer because generally speaking, I feel like We, at least in the development community, you give people the term senior based on they've been doing this for X amount of time. That doesn't mean necessarily that they are senior, as in like they have the answers. Um, which I think a lot of people forget. They just think, Oh, you've been doing this for 10 years, so you must be great. But it's like, well, I could have been doing this for 10 years at a junior level and now I'm a senior. So there's that. Exactly. But I was also going to say it's not, at least, at least for me and, and Kathleen, you can tell me if, if you don't agree. It's not that you need to know everything super in depth, like to, for my example, right? So it's like, if somebody asked me, like, how do you use Dagger or why do you use Dagger? I could give them an answer, you know, about dependency injection and kind of like why it's a good idea and all that kind of stuff. And if somebody asks me to go a bit more in detail and they're like, you know, all right, behind the hood, how does Dagger work? Mate, if I, I have no idea, right? And there's going to be candidates that you get that will know the answer for that. But my my thing is more... Do you understand why you're doing what you're doing? So like to the MVVM example, I've had so many people, we go on projects, you know, a few new candidates come in and they're like, oh, we want to change the architecture of this app to MVVM. Why? Because that's how Google says to do it. That <laughs> That's not a reason. That's because you like a lot of the times as well. I think people think that the new thing is an improvement over the old thing and it will give you benefits. Like it will make you out faster, but it's, that's not the case. Like it's a different way of doing things. And it's, and like I've been doing projects, all the projects I've done for probably the past four years, five years have been MVVM. And then the last project where we had to refactor the whole thing and we knew that we were going to be getting a bunch of junior devs on board to this project, we decided to go with MVP for the architecture, right? There's nothing wrong with using MVP if you know how to do it properly and make it life cycle way and all that kind of stuff. There's nothing wrong with doing that. That's not the wrong answer. So I think like if people don't understand why they're doing what they're doing, that's definitely the missing part. Like you could, yeah, you can't go to an interview and be like, I do this because Google told me to do it. You know, (laughs) that's, that's, yeah, that just does not fly.
1: Totally, totally. So I think that if, if there's one thing, if somebody's, you know, listening, um, you know, not really in regards to an interview and how you'll perform to it, but in your career, um, I think, I think it's essential. When you're using something, be uh, sure that you understand why you're using it and wh- what benefits it brings. Because when you get into a table to some developers and you're discussing about the technology, and we I mean, have a good example of Jetpack Compose Navigation, which in my opinion is not the best library. We can expand on that in the following example. But when you get into a discussion with a developer, right, and you're discussing about technologies and stuff, and, you know, just, just as a fun example, you talk about uh, a tool. Compose navigation, and you'll say, "Oh man, this is so. This is this is awesome. This composed navigation library is the new is the new stuff. is this This is the good stuff." And you now the other candidate can can try to elaborate on uh, candidate. I'm sorry, your 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 you know your friend you're talking to. Um, you you try he, he, maybe 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 that friend is going to go into details about why it's good and why it's bad, and from that point on. You know, you're left out out of the conversation and, and this is just like the, the, you know, maybe not the best example, but, um, I think it's essential from this discussion that we had that you need to understand why you're using something. I mean, maybe you just learned it uh, and it's fine to not understand everything from, you know, a uh, day one. Um, but at some point, You need to revisit and understand why you're using it. I think, I think it's essential to, because otherwise you're using tools just for the sake of it. You're not using tools to help you in your, in your project. The same thing with architecture. Um, you need to adapt it to your needs. Um, you could use MVP today in a correct manner and be as efficient as MVVM. For example, um, you know, um, I had, I, I've, I've seen implementations of MVP, which were totally fine. Uh, and then the, the, the change which was in MVVM was again subjective, um, because, uh, lots of people were saying MVVM brings the advantage of decoupling the view model, um, you know, from the view, uh, not being tied through an interface and also having reactive, um, pieces of, of UI that can be observed. Now, obviously, at its core, nobody says that MVP can't have those, right? At the end of the day, if you ask me, MVVM is just MVP, maybe with reactive um UI state, maybe with that. But again, people could have used that. I mean, we've had MVP and we use the state object inside the reactive, uh, you know, state holder. So, I mean, that doesn't mean that, obviously, maybe that implementation MVP, where the view would kind of interact with an interface, um, but most important, the view model would kind of mutate um, the UI through an interface, then yeah, maybe I can agree that that's not ideal. Um, because, you know, it kind of ignores this kind of huge benefit of, of, uh, you know, reactive, uh, or observable pattern that we have with RF Java live data, whatever you want to mention it. So, um, again, it's really important to understand why you're using it and you're not going to migrate to MVVM. I'm sorry. As you mentioned, just because MVVM is the new thing. Um, this, this, the same with other stuff. So, Um, you need to understand which are the benefits and which are the trade-offs. And and, uh, just to to sum this up, uh, I mentioned Compose navigation, which, um, to be honest, um, on my Udemy course, I had to uh, go into other topics um, like navigation and other libraries, curtains and stuff, simply because, you know, um, people were just asking them. Uh, asking to learn about them, even though, again, the, the scope of the course was was composed. But it was interesting to see how these things blend, even though, you know, maybe retrofit has nothing to do with the UI layer. Uh, again, on one side, I had um, students complaining about me teaching them and other students complaining about uh, not teaching them. So another uh, takeaway, if you're, you're going into this direction, just as a small um, tip, don't really, um, don't really take, um, uh, to your heart things like that. Just, um, you know, um, s- some things you're not gonna, you're not going to be able to please everyone. So something that probably a lot of people are saying, but I'm just gonna reiterate it. Going back to my example with, with compose navigation. If there is one library within my Udemy course that, that students complain about, I not really complain, but, I find a lot of weird issues, um, it is composed navigation. And I think, um, a lot of the developers that have been using it are echoing the sentiment. Unfortunately, defining your Android app routes as UDIs, like, um, you know, like a web app is just not going to make sense for me. Um, I mean, I, I, I try to teach it. Um, people are using it. Uh, even, even at work, we're using it, but, um, you know, it's, it's not ideal. Um, so, um, for small apps, maybe it's fine, but I've had so many issues, um, j- just, just, you know, trying to navigate to a simple, uh, a simple scenario, navigating to a detail screen. And if you pass, uh, you know, you have slash and then the ID of that, because that's the, you know, you have, for example, list of restaurants and then you have the main route, the start path, restaurants, and then you want to go to restaurant details and then you have, Restaurants, dash, and then you need some sort of identifier for that restaurant to get its details, right? And if at runtime, the backend will return something funny for that ID, your app might even crash. And I have a good example for that. Um, at some point, just out of human error, there was a navigation to a detail screen, and the ID um, was uh, received from the server to be an HTTP link. Again, human error, but yeah, crashed because the library tried to, um, take that as a deep link, even though there was no deep link defined. So a lot of stuff like that. Um, I think, I think Gabor Varadi went into much more detail than I, I, can do that right now with a lot of things that are not working. And that's why we have replacement libraries like, um, Rafael, um, Costa's library with composed destinations. Why do you think that library came up? It b- came up because developers were not happy with a lot of things. And one thing that comes into my mind right now, I, I I just remembered, is that you can't pass parcelable objects. I don't know, maybe in the last updates, maybe they added that. But, um you know, when I, when I initially played around with it, I couldn't Um because everything is defined as a path. So how are you going to send an item? Um Which again, mm, for some cases, makes sense. For some cases, it can make sense. Um, so yeah, stuff like that. I think it's, it's really important to, to be able to, to, to kind of at least understand that there are trade-offs to everything. Um, you know, a, every library.
0: Yeah. No, I totally agree. And, and that also proves the point that, um, because, you know, Google or Apple, whoever it is told me to do it is not the right answer because a lot of the time it, it's not even ready. Like a lot of stuff that gets promoted now as, you know, this is the next best thing. It's not ready for production. Like you can't, you can't do that. Like people are creating libraries to fix bugs in new libraries like that's that's when you know that that's not always the right answer cool so i have just got a couple questions um left and then i'm happy to wrap and then if there's anything else that you want to talk about we can get into that um but uh one question i have which is something that i like to ask everybody i don't think i sent you this so if you haven't listened to the podcast you you'll have to come up with an answer on the fly but i'm interested to know so the question is what do you think separates an okay developer from a great developer
1: Oh this is a very tough question to be honest. <laughs> it's a very tough one and um a complex question because um you know um actually I, I think now that now that you mention I think I asked I, I created a tweet about this asking people trying to understand how they define how do they define a good developer, right? So I would honestly say, you know, um in light of what we discussed, um there are already some points that we can, you know, take. For example, um the fact that when you come back to your code it's Um usually you should find ways of improving it. Um and and one thing that stuck out was stood out with me, sorry, was um when I initially started learning, um I was just trying to get the code to run. And that definition of spaghetti, you just wouldn't really care about what in the world you're doing there. But then you'd kind of learn about abstractions, interfaces, abstract classes, generics, um a lot of cool stuff to be honest. A very powerful tools. However, this kind of things can be easily abused. You would create base fragment, base view model, base fragment of the base fragment, and stuff like that. I've done this countless times, out of projects. And if there is one piece of advice that I would give to any developer, is try to stay at your current job long enough so that you see the results of your APIs and designs and and code. And it's not something that I came up with. I, I, I think I, I've seen this into a very good presentation. Can't really remember right now um, what was the name. But it, it was something related to TDD, uh, a TDD conference. So w- when I heard this, I kind of, I kind of ran into, into my ear and I realized, oh man, this is this is brilliant. Because if you stay in a company or a contract or whatever, um, just enough to ship the product or just do your job and then you just leave, You'll never see that whether your decisions were good or bad. And, and, and for example, in some projects, um, I, I had the chance to spend more than three or four years developing from scratch. And then at the end of that, I faced a lot of issues in some parts of the app, overly abstracted, overly complicated. And, and, and what I understood is that as developers, we, we kind of tend to think of ourselves really smart because we have a method with a few lines and then we have another method with the same few lines and then we ex- we, we extract that and then we saved three or four lines of code. And it indeed, it's a great feeling. I, I've had that. But on the long run, um, when you kind of tend to um, abuse this and abstract everything, hide everything uh, into bad abstractions, because they're also good abstractions. Um, but when you kind of create, again, as I said, base view model base, base, fragment, and stuff. After a few years of maintenance of, on that project, you'll start reaping the results of, of, of those decisions. And you'll see that simple things are no longer simple. Uh, adding multiple layers of indirection, having a simple screen that does a simple stuff, uh, action. And then for it to do that, you have to go through the view model, through the use case, through the repository, through the client, through the whatnot, Four or five layers of indirection, each method not doing anything. Um, when I kind of got to the point of being forced to, to do that because of my own uh, decisions in the past, I realized, man, I didn't do this, uh, in a good manner. It felt good in the beginning, but now it feels very bad because, um, I mean, you, you kind of get to this point where you understand what mistakes you did. And my point was that if you stay long enough in your in, 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 in the company or, or at the project that you're building or, you know, updating, whatever you're doing, you will be able to see which decisions of yours in terms of, again, of API design, like how you structure things, how your architecture is in place, stuff like that. Um, you will see which of them were good. And by good means you never had problems with it. And which of them created a lot of issues and a lot of um bugs and a lot of, um you know, um too much maintenance for simple stuff, right? Updating something in shared preferences, you needed four layers of interactions. It'll just take too much time. So my advice is, if you can, and you're not trying to change jobs every six months, but if you can try to do this, it will have a huge impact on the way that you write code. Because... As soon as I understood my mistakes, again you can obviously understand and learn from others, other people's mistakes. If you can do that, then you're like a ve- you're you're like next level. I honestly, the only way, or in most of the cases, the only way that I learn um, from a mistake is if that mistake is mine, because it kind of it, it, when I kind of get back to it and it, it kind of bites me in the ass, I kind of realize, man. This was not something wise. It felt wise. It's no longer wise. And from this point on, I'm not going to do that. If I have something, I'm not going to create 10 layers of indirection. I'm not going to create 10 base fragments that I can't maintain two years from now. And obviously, you know, some people will say, but why is your logic that simple? And, and my answer would be, that's how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be very simple. So um, just to summarize this, you know, you kind of start off really low, when you kind of try to make everything to work, to run, to compile, whatever, then you go to a, a very interesting level where you try to overcomplicate things with abstractions and stuff and um patterns and maybe implementing these end patterns where they're not supposed to be implemented. And then, when you kind of read the results and understand why those things are, aren't always the best, you kind of go back to the, uh, the decision that I don't need to write spaghetti code, but I also don't need to write complicated code. So, uh, if Again, uh, expanding on your question, trying to answer it, if your code is simple, um, then you're a good programmer. So if the problem is simple and your code is simple, good job. If the problem is complicated and your solution is simple, then you're a hero. Because, I mean, getting the, the, the simple solution, the simple code means that everyone jumping into that project will know what that code is about. We'll be able to easily maintain it, update it, whatever it needs to do. And, and you know, at the end of the day, that code is, is, is the winner because it allows you to never have, um, headaches. Obviously, if you want job security and you want to be the only one that understands the code and you, you're, <laughs> you're more than welcome to do that. But yeah, answering your question, um, obviously you need to know, uh, just to summarize, you need to understand that you can always improve your code, and I would say simplify because this is what I learned. Maybe, maybe if we take this interview in <laughs> next year or in a, in a couple of years, maybe my my view will change. But at this time, my my sensation is that you need to simplify your code because that's in everyone's best interest. Uh, And always learn from your mistakes and try to create an environment where you'll be able to learn from your own mistakes. If you always change the job six months, one year. You might never get a chance to see why that thing that you wrote is now, you know, stressing and killing everybody at, at the previous job, right? So, um, I think, I think, I think, um, these are like very, very important things. And obviously there are a lot of other things and, um, I'm really happy if you would also add a few. Um, but these two come into my mind right now.
0: Okay. Sweet. That's a good answer. And I was going to say for people that are listening that may like, they might have their own projects and stuff like that. Another really good test to see if your code is up to scratch is um just don't look at it for two months and then come back to it and then when you don't understand what you did anymore, then you knew that you didn't make good decisions and if you understand then, you probably make good decisions, so that's also a good test i I always find that with my own apps is that I don't update them for a year, and then when I come back, I'm like, I don't even understand how this works like <laughs> and it's like playing it's like playing jenga i don't know what's going to break now
1: <laughs> i don't even understand what it does right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah
0: yeah and like my users like it i don't even know what it does but it's fun But it's brilliant awesome all brilliant, right, cool yeah. um so final final question um where can people find you online Um, what's your twitter handle all the stuff you got going on the book all that good stuff
1: yeah uh, well to be honest um if i would be encouraging people to reach out to me it would be on twitter i am um mostly active there in the last maybe a couple of months, I've been less active, having a bit of issues with time and, and also some personal issues. But I think the best, the best place to, to find me is on Twitter. My handle is Kathleen Gita for probably very difficult for somebody to. Yeah, it will be in the show notes. Don't worry. Yeah. 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 Um, and again, as, um, as a reminder, if, if you're trying to, you know, um, get a bit into the community, um, I'm going to tell you that, you know, Twitter will help you. Uh, and I'm not telling you to use Twitter just to watch silly stuff. I'm telling you to what to be on Twitter, um, for, um, the other, uh, developers. Uh, the Android community is still not big, um, as the web community is and, um, maybe, I don't know, stuff like blockchain and, and others, but, um, since since I joined Twitter, I can honestly say that it changed my view and it helped me a lot because it got me into contact uh you know talking about the interviews uh, it did something similar it got me into contact with other developers and I was able to see how other developers were doing stuff and I understood that maybe other t- initially I was resistant to some some opinions, but then with time, those other opinions those different approaches. Uh, matured and I kind of realized, man, those guys were up to something. Um, they're actually right in what I was doing. I, I was wrong. Uh, and, um, probably there's a better way. So, um, you basically can get very easily in touch with, if you have a problem with every, uh, developer from Google dev relationship, just, um, relations. I'm sorry. Just d m and you'll probably get an answer um, I, I I usually do that, and I'm amazed by the fact that they can get back to me um so soon. Um, you can get um, you know in touch with developers from huge companies, Twitter and stuff, a lot of active developers, a lot of you know um, promoters of, of good stuff um and, and to be honest, it will just bring you like a lot of opportunities and I can actually you know give you that 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 you know uh, apart from these abstract examples. Uh, a concrete one or maybe two. Um, I wouldn't have written the book if it wasn't for Twitter. Um, I wouldn't probably have reached to Pact on my own or to any other book. I would have probably, you know, just dreamt about it. Um, and, um, my girlfriend, Anna, which is again, um, pretty active on, on, on Twitter as well. Um, she actually had a chance to, um, get a job from Twitter, um, as a junior Android developer. So, uh, I think that's amazing after, you know, trying to interact with some local companies, which, to be honest, uh, weren't um, what what she was looking for. And she she, she actually joined a company um, from Germany, which she actually enjoys a lot. And again, that's just the benefit of being on Twitter, sharing what you know, trying to understand from others. And, you know, um, a lot of people have this kind of preconceived idea about Twitter. And it's understandable why, because a lot of people talk a lot of rubbish. Uh, but if you kind of try to filter that and, and actually, um, you know, talk to technical people, you'd be amazed to what, um, the things you can, uh, actually, uh, talk to, uh, and, and people, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to be honest. It, it's, um, it's something that I would advise anyone to do. Nice. Okay, cool.
0: Um, and I was going to say, you're not the first person that said that to me either. So people that I listen, I mean, I'm not super active on Twitter. I scroll it occasionally and occasionally, I still find stuff that's really interesting. So for people that are not super active or not even on it, just like get on it, follow a couple of good people and just see, see if it works for you for sure. All right. Um, that's a wrap from me. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I
1: didn't ask? Um, just one thing that I would like us to touch upon because I remember, I remember you, you mentioned about it, uh, on Twitter. It was about compose. A lot of people are talking about compose right now. Um, it's the hottest thing. Right. Um, and I, I, I reckon, you know, you asked me like something if it's really that easy, something like that. Um, you, you mentioned something and I would really like to just very, you know, briefly touch upon because, um, to be honest, I don't think it's really that easy. It depends. As with everything, uh, to be honest, everything, you know, you know, th- there is that joke with you can answer any questions with it depends and you're going to be right. Because it depends. Um, I, I would say that compose for simple things, simple screens, not overly complex stuff is going to be easier for you. Um, it's true that the mental model is a bit different. Um, you know, we're expected to place things into Kotlin functions and, you know, most of the time be executed only when we expect them to be executed. If you do that into a compose, you're going to have a surprise. So, there are a lot of things like, you know, not having this kind of, uh, imperative model where you would kind of set the state. Uh, you have a declarative, uh, uh, you know, uh, shift and model. Um, again, as a small, um, thing, you could have done that with XML as well, but it would have been a bit more complicated. Maybe you would went into the, the, the part of, of data binding. But at this moment, I would say, Yes, yes, you would get messy. Um, and I would say, I mean, why do I need XML and data binding when now I can do this with Compose? So again, for simple things, just rendering a list. I know this example is overused, given by everybody, but I'm just going to give it again. It's just much easier. Less boilerplate, code to the right. And I even heard arguments that you can simplify this with views uh, by, um, uh, you know, in XML, by just using some um, some libraries. Um, but to be honest, I mean, the question remains, why do you need the library to, to show a list, man? I mean, I don't want to use the library just to show a list. Um, even if it simplifies my life, um, if we go into the topics of libraries, as I said, I usually just want to use the bare minimum. Uh, and when I do that, I have to ask myself very well, do I need that? As we kind of talked about. So I'm very careful with libraries and stuff. Um, so if I need the library to display a list, then something is off in my opinion could be wrong but again in compose simple stuff are easy to achieve easy to build and even for somebody which is just starting out i would say that it could be easier um it really depends on 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 how you kind of are used to do f- doing things but if you're like a fresh starter and you have a new sex demo, you're not used with the imperative stuff um then maybe it could be easier because i i i actually learned learned react native and also some flutter um and at that time I didn't really know that much Android and it, it felt very easy. Um and I, I'm sure that you know I I've asked a few people and they told me that um you know Compose seems to be easy for them, them having no background on Android. Obviously, can't really give up a prop answer here because um I can't really run an experiment on that. But my feeling is that it's it could be easier. Um Taking aside some gotchas, and this is where you kind of go into the second part of the answer, which is for some stuff, Compose is not that easy. There are a lot of changes, um, side effects, APIs, the thing that we mentioned. You can't just place a method call in your Composable and expect it to run once and everybody be happy with it. That Composable is just going to recompose and your code is going to you know, be executed more times than you wanted and you're going to go into weird uh, stuff. Um, so there are a lot of things, for example, lazy column, which is the go to to create a list of I know, a vertical list. Um, if you have states in every item, say that your items expand on a bu- on a button. They have you know cute little arrow, and you press on it. Every item expands. You probably don't want to store that inside the view model. You just store that as as a you know um, uh, internal state for every item. However, if you reorder that that list, or you have to do anything in terms of you know re re um, publishing it with a different order, you're gonna find some weird stuff. And that's because by default, lazy column kind of, you know, indexes the state or maybe stores the state if that, that's a bit more uh, easier, stores the state based on index. So the internal state, I mean, so if your uh, fifth element would be expanded, its internal state would say, yeah, I'm expanded. But then when you reorder the list, say that an update comes from the server, the fifth element becomes the sixth, the sixth, I'm sorry then you'll see that you'd expect that the sixth element is now the one expanded, but in reality it's the other way around because the state was preserved by lazy column. Lazy column didn't know about that. So you need to know about things like key parameters, right? That allow you to, you know, allow lazy column to understand how to, you know, preserve state uh, across recomp- uh, recompositions, not really recompositions, but reordering in, in this particular case. So there are a lot of, you know... um, Things and recomposition is not straightforward to understand. Documents say that as long as the same input is given to a composable, that composable will not recompose. Well, I beg to differ. That rec- that composable will still recompose in some scenarios, even if the input is the same, even if the input has the same memory memory reference. And actually, it, uh, I, I I created a presentation for um at some point. Never got to publish it, but um it was an article um based on this, and you would basically be able to recreate a scenario. Right. Where, um, you know, you would pass the same data to a composable, but because of some, some other composables being recomposed, again, your composable would still be recomposed and you'd have to fix this with, um, things like, um, immutable annotation or stable annotation. So there are a lot of things and, you know, that you're not really used to. Right. And you need to watch out for them. Uh, and you're going to end up with some weird stuff. So, um, again, um, some things may not be that straightforward. And um, for complex things, I found Compose to be quite difficult because some APIs are not really that mature. You won't find as many resources for Compose as you will find for XML. And a lot of times, when we had something very specific to implement and we found something done on, on Views, we had to just use the Android View uh, inside the Composable hierarchy and, and just go from there because Compose is not there yet. It will be, um, and again, there's this argument that Compose is 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 um, you know um, really not ready for production. I would say that this is partially true. However, I'm sure that initially, when the view system was was you know um, at its initial releases, it was the same. So it's a new tool. I'm expecting it to not be 100%. I'm expecting it not to be ideal, uh, but at the same time, you have interoperability right so you're not really forced into doing everything with compose right just you know if you f- uh, when when we don't have control and or we, where we find some weird bugs, we're just using views and at some point it will be it'll be fixed um and you can just use composables and views as you want uh interchangeable right so um I would say that yeah, maybe we're not really there yet, but you know it's what's what's it to be expected it's it's quite early right we we are compose one to two stable. Um, So, uh, we're still still soon. Uh, It's to be expected for it to not not be perfect, but I would honestly say that it's worth the trouble of of playing around with it, having parts of the app migrated if you want. And if you migrate, one last thing, and I think this this is what Gaur mentioned, you're going to migrate probably in a a project that has navigation between between fragments and you have a navigation framework library, whatever it can be, navigation component, it can be whatever you're using, you should probably just add composables inside your fragment, uh, instead of replacing fragments with composables directly, because it allows you to, to, you know, uh, it allows you to kind of, um, um, keep your, um, navigation library. Uh, everything in terms of, uh, you know, um, arguments and safe arcs, which aren't that safe at all on navigation compose, uh, you can get to keep them. Uh, you can get to keep, uh, you know, um, integrations with third party, um, SDKs and stuff. So, uh, again, I would still say that even though we're not there, mm, I, I, do, <laughs> I, I would still say that it's worth trying it and it's still worth playing around with it. And, um, it's still something which is, uh, out of other Jetpack libraries It's still, it's still something that's worth uh, being excited about. There are libraries which I'm not excited about right now from Jetpack, to be honest. But this one, this one it, it, it was quite a change, right? And again, it's not perfect. But it, for example, in our team it allows us to, to just move faster in some areas. And in some areas if we can't, we're just gonna use views.
0: I think that's very well put. <clears throat> I've given it I've given Compose like a, a brief look. Um like to your point, it's I don't know I can't comment on whether or not it's production ready. I know there's apps that definitely use it in production. Um, but I can comment that at least for the work that I do for companies, they're not interested to make the switch yet because it's still pretty, mm-hmm. pretty, um, junior is not the right word, but it's very early in the game to, to make that switch yeah. and then have to make changes later. Um, so yeah, I would, I would agree. If you're going to go the route of like migrating some stuff, you want to migrate it in a way that causes the least disruption to everything else. Um, but yeah, I would definitely say it's worth a try. And obviously if people are interested in learning it, then there'll be a link to your book on Amazon. So if they want to go and check it out, then they are very welcome to go and do so. Awesome. And that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or fellow developer. And if you really want to support the show, you can do so with a coffee donation at coffeeencodingpod.com forward slash donate. And if you don't want to miss future episodes of the show, make sure you follow or subscribe in your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Coffee and Coding Podcast.